Well, it's great to be back here and to be at a church that I have gotten to know many of you. I've been here many times. I've traveled around preaching at churches in our presbytery, uh, letting them know about the ministry of RUF uh, almost every Sunday uh, this past year, And but it's nice to come back and uh, get to share God's word with those I've been growing uh, to know and to love. So the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is, is one that I, I love. It's, I keep going back to it, and one of the blessings of getting to go around and preach is you get to kind of pick and choose which passages you want to go at. So that passage is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'll read the passage and then pray for us, and we'll get into consider what the Lord is saying to us through this passage of his word. So again, it's Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you again for this day of rest, a day to come together and to worship you, and now to hear your word. And we confess many of us may be come to you now worn out, maybe tired, maybe distracted. Meet us in the midst of that. Give us great comfort and peace through the preaching of your word. Illuminate our minds, open your hearts, open our hearts by your spirit. Help us to pay attention to what is here in your word and to receive it. Receive the truth there with faith and love and humility. And we pray it would bear fruit in our lives. We pray most of all that we would be refreshed in our knowledge and sight of the beauty and glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this past fall, I had my own Athens-like experience as I was just getting onto IUP's campus. Some of you may, may, I may have shared this story with you before, but it, it kept coming to my mind as I was thinking about this passage, and so I thought I would share it again. It was a Monday afternoon, and I was headed to the IUP Philosophy Club. And uh, I was headed there because earlier in the week, I had gone to the uh, just student organization fair where you've got all the organizations on campus, hundreds of them. I'm just kind of checking out. I'm observing, trying to figure out what is IUP like? What do students do here? And I see this philosophy club. And, and being a philosophy and English major in my undergrad, I, I go over there. I'm curious. I want to I talk to them. So I meet the president. And uh, I was just up front with her. Sometimes I can get away with being a student a little bit. I don't have as big of a beard as, as Derek, so you know I can blend in a little bit more. Uh, but I, I let her know I'm, I'm a campus minister, but I did major in philosophy, and I'd, I'd love to come to this philosophy club and just kind of discuss philosophy with other students and get to know them. And to my pleasant surprise, she just welcomed me to come, got my email to send me the information about when they would be meeting. And so I got the email, and I was headed to the group that was meeting in the lobby of the Humanities Building. And I get there, and there's a surprising number of students there for a, for a philosophy club. Uh, and so that was, that was already encouraging to me. But I get there, and the very first topic for that day was the nature of morality. Basically, sort, sort of what was actually brought up in Sunday school earlier is, is Morality is something that's ultimately relative, that's subjective, culturally conditioned, 
right and wrong is really just our own dislikes and likes? Or is it something objective and real that applies to all of us? And so this is my first time there on that campus, so I just, I'm just going to be quiet and listen and, you know, ask some questions here or there. And as the discussion goes on, it's clear there's not really many answers out there. A lot of confusion. And finally, the leader of the discussion turns to me and says, what do you think? Well, what would you have said in that situation? How would you even have begun to present Jesus and the resurrection to these philosophically inclined yet largely clueless philosophy students at at IUP? Maybe that's a question that you're immediately interested in. Or maybe for you, it seems kind of distant. You're like, I, I don't deal with philosophy majors on a daily basis. Maybe if that's you, why should you care? I want to I address that from the beginning. And I, I just want to say briefly, I really think it, it's not too hard to argue is that the impact of this marketplace of ideas or this philosophical discussion that's often going on that we see is on campuses It really extends into everything. It doesn't, the ideas don't just stay on campus, but they show up in our homes, in our workplaces, in the most ordinary places, because everyone really is, has to be a theologian and a philosopher to some extent. You know, I've gotten to know some students coming in, and some have come from really small towns outside of Indiana, some have come from Philadelphia, and they all come in and they're largely clueless as to who, not only what the gospel is, but who even God is and what even things like the nature of morality. And so I say all that to to drive home the point that this passage is not, it may seem immediately applicable to the campus environment, but it's actually deeply edifying for all of us personally as we seek to reach those in the spheres that we've been placed, whether that's just our families and dealing with the questions that come up there or in the workplace or anywhere. And we see this, we see in this passage um, how Jesus is teaching us to go out and towards the world and Paul's actions and worlds with three main things. We see one, the motivation for proclaiming Christ in the marketplace, two, the manner in which we're called to do it, and finally, three, the hope we can have for the outcome of that witness. So let's first look at the motivation. It's not insignificant here what happens in the very first verse that kind of gets Paul going. It begins with him being provoked, And to give you some background, this whole encounter in Athens, this wasn't part of Paul's original missionary plan. He wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Thessalonica and Berea, and then then I'll hit the philosophers over in Athens. In fact, he had to go there because there was persecution at Berea. And so he's there, and, you know, he's kind of just, he's waiting around for Silas and Timothy. He's kind of on this, like, extended layover, and so... 
He's doing maybe what some people would do stuck in a great city. They go and look around and check out what are the sights to see. But as he looks around, it's not, it doesn't end up being this casual vacation, but something happens to him. His spirit was provoked within him. This word is really strong. It could be translated as angered as well. And what, what was it that was provoking him, affecting him so greatly? Well, verse 16 tells us he saw that the city was full of idols. This is kind of another interesting word. I, I think my favorite translation of it is actually John Stotts. He says, he translated it as, this was a city submerged in its idols. It really fit what the Greek, some of the Greek writers of the time described Athens as. One of them famously said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man. It really was almost this profound physical depiction before Paul's eyes of what we had already, already been confessing our sin about, the, the idolatry of humanity, the tendency we all have, as Calvin said, to be idol factories. That's, that's what our hearts are constantly doing. And I think you already got the sense, even I loved the, that confession, call to confession, uh, that idols aren't just this physical thing. They are physical in this case, what Paul is saying, but they're much more largely something that we, we lift up and begin to see as more worthy of our time and energy and focus than God. And those can be good things. Those can be family. Those can be academic success with students. It can be money, power, sexuality. Even things God intended for good, we begin to put in his place. But let's think a little bit more about Paul's anger here at idolatry. Because you could be angry as you look out in the world in a way that's frankly kind of ungodly. And it, if you look more closely at the word here, the, the tense that's used in the original language, it's, it kind of paints this picture of this was a slow development for Paul. I don't think that Paul just showed up there and, and he immediately saw the first idol, and he was just enraged. But it was more he kept walking around, and there was this slow building of this frustration with what humanity was doing, how they were falling short of the glory of God. It really reminds us of God himself, his slow anger at the idolatry that he sees in his creation. I mean, in some ways, you could look at the whole story of the Bible as this happening over and over again. <laughs> because idolatry really is the sin behind all sin. We see God again and again being provoked by this idolatry in his creation and moving out towards them in mercy. And one of the places I was trying to think of where this shows up in Scripture as well and immediately came to mind for me was Isaiah. And I, as I looked and was thinking about Isaiah, I saw in chapter 2, verse 8, Isaiah prophesies too that even the people of God, their land was filled with idols. 
and yet the Lord is merciful with them. Continues to go out, though, in Isaiah 65, near the end of the book, he says, I spread out my hands all days to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. What Paul was seeing in Athens in this moment is what the Lord sees in his creation and sees specifically there in Isaiah in Israel. And so Paul it is stirred up the passion for God's glory. But I don't think that's the only thing that's going on here. There's also a mercy towards sinners. And we could look at another passage where we see this provocation working up in the heart of God in in the Son of God, in Jesus. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it said, as he was looking out the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus does the same thing in response to that compassion and that, and that desire for these people to know God truly. He calls for mission to go out. He says the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Paul's provocation of spirit that he's having here is really the work of the spirit of Christ within him. That's what's driving him out into the marketplace. And so that's the question for us. What provokes us? If you think about it, what, what is it if someone says it or, or does something? What really gets you going, once you, what makes you want to get out of your seat and do something? Is it God's glory? Is it a compassion for sinners? Or is it something else? Some kind of just frustration that things aren't the way they've always been? Or maybe you're like me sometimes and you just need to be provoked more, period. Maybe you're not mad at something else, but you really need that spirit of Christ to work in your heart. And maybe the way this begins, and again, this is why I keep going, I loved that confession from earlier. We just need to be provoked with our own idolatry first. Before we're going out in the world, we need to have that experience within ourselves, which we see the way God's being robbed of his glory, and we're missing out on the good intention that God created us for. And this is a hard thing to do on our own. I was, I, again, I was thinking so much about this word provoked here, and I, I saw it show up in one other passage Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It's a verse that might be familiar to a lot of people. Let us consider how to stir up, or could translate it, provoke one another to love and good works. That this, this provocation to being motivated to going out into the marketplace, it's not just something we do by ourselves. It's something we help each other with. In some ways, that's why I love RUF coming here. We're having RUF Sunday. You're encouraging us. We're encouraging you. I hope that's what's happening. Even in some sense, that is what is happening as we worship together, as we sing the songs that we did. 
just saying, as we make those confessions of sin and faith, we're being stirred up ultimately to go out into the world. The more we honestly assess our own lives in light of what Christ has done, the more we will then begin to truly see the state of the world and have a true compassion towards it. And the more we will experience this motivation to go out there. So if this is the motivation that propels us in the marketplace, well, the next question is, what do we actually do when we get there? What, what do we actually say? That's probably a hard part for a lot of us. And here we see um, very profoundly uh, an incredible example of what Paul does. And first, he does something he often does. He goes out, he's reasoning, he's conversing, he goes to the synagogue first, to the people who would be most familiar, that would have the context of the Old Testament for the message of Christ. But then he, he goes on beyond that, and he encounters these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And at first, it seems like you know he's continued to do what he normally did, what he did back in verse 3 of this chapter with the Thessalonians, he said he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and raise from the dead. But they're not, they're not quite getting it. They're, they're kind of confused. We see in verse 18 through 20, they say, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they, so they take him, maybe, maybe somewhat by force, and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Areopagus was this hill overlooking the marketplace in Athens, and it was basically where there was this council that would go and they would hear out and discuss all types of matters, whether it's political or religious or some civil dispute or something like that. And so as Paul's going up there, you can almost even imagine he's got this council of philosophers that are maybe listening to what he's saying, but he's even got a larger crowd probably following around him to see what this guy is about. And so Paul, he opens up his speech with this kind of attention grabber that might be somewhat of a backhanded compliment if we really think about it. He says in verse 22 and 23, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And when, when he's saying very religious here, this word, it really could be taken positively or negatively. Maybe negatively is superstitious, and I think Paul's kind of playing his cards here well, giving something that they could take as a compliment, but he doesn't necessarily have to actually, he, he, he can intend it in more of a negative sense at the same time. And I think we figure that out by what he's going on in the, in, to say in the next verse, in 23. He's pointing out Kindly, but still pointing out an inconsistency. You know, as he had been walking around Athens and making this kind of tour and experiencing that provocation, um, 
he finds this idol, one, one idol in the midst of all idols, and there's actually some historical evidence that this existed, marked to an unknown God. And I, I just think this is so interesting because the Athenians, they had these hundreds of idols. Their city was submerged in idols. They had a God for everything. Like today we have an app for everything. And yet they're still like, well, maybe we missed one, so let's make this altar to the unknown God. I think for Paul, it might have been like this physical representation of what he says in Romans chapter 1, of how everyone knows the true God, yet they, they suppress that knowledge. But it keeps, it keeps popping up. Pointing out inconsistencies is maybe one of the first things that's worth noting here about as we think about the manner and how we engage with the marketplace. You know, going back, you're probably wondering if you haven't heard that story of the philosophy club before. Like, what did, what did he actually say there? And I won't recount the, you know, the whole thing, but one of the th- first things I began doing as I started out was just saying, beginning to point out an inconsistency with them that you're claiming that morality is subjective, that's where the discussion got to. There was no way rationally to account for any objective moral values. That's, that's where they were. You, you claim that, yet a few conversations later, maybe even I could point out in the context of this discussion, you just passionately argued for why something, whether it's the president or your roommate, something they did that was wrong. How can you even do that if you're saying it's, it's ultimately relative? And yet, this is what we do. We make value judgments all the time as human beings. It's just inescapable. And it's because we're made in the image of this God of justice, and we live in his world. That, that occasion for inconsistency, noticing that, became an opportunity to bring in what the Bible actually says about who God is and who we are. And that's really what Paul moves on to. And it struck me here, as we look more in the content, the theological content of what Paul is going to say in the rest of the speech, he doesn't just give a simple gospel message as we might think of it. He actually talks mainly about the nature of God, the nature of men, and the reality of judgment, and the need for repentance. And you might wonder, well, why? why? He didn't even get John 3.16 in there. Like, what, what's going on here? And I, I heard a pastor recently use this metaphor, and he was talking about evangelism, especially in our increasingly post-Christian context that we're, we're finding ourselves in. And he was saying that, People have, you know, these, he's using a somewhat silly metaphor, that people have these little dots in their head, and you could kind of think of them as I, they're the worldview shaping concepts and ideas that, you know, determine what do you think about God? What do you think about right or wrong and sin and who mankind is? And he said there was a time, maybe many years ago, or there's been different periods throughout history where maybe the cultures that, that Christians have found themselves in have largely agreed, broadly speaking, uh, not fully, with a lot of the Christian ideas about God, about sin. 
So all you would really have to do was fill in the dots, or connect the dots, not fill in the dots, missing the wrong kids game there. Um, all you'd have to do is connect the dots. But the question is, what do you do if those dots aren't there? What if no one has even the right understanding of God, the right understanding of man, they don't even know what sin is? We have to do some work putting those dots there in the first place. And I think that's partly what Paul is doing here. That's what we see him focusing on these broader ideas before he's bringing in the gospel immediately. And it's very applicable, again, to us as Paul is speaking to a pre-Christian audience. And we're often speaking to a post-Christian audience dealing with some of the same confusion. So he first fills in the dots, deals with the revelation of God himself. And again, this kind of, this goes back to the issue of idolatry and the fact that so many in this crowd, perhaps all of the crowd, had crazy wrong ideas about God. Whether it was the Epicureans, they, are what, they were what maybe we would call today atheists or deists. They thought either God didn't exist or he was so far removed from having anything to do with humanity that functionally he didn't exist. The Stoics were, on the other hand, what we might call today pantheists. They, they thought God was in everything. That It was almost, you know, for lack of a better term, it was like the Force. They, maybe they were the Jedis of the philosophical world at the time. And so that God was more this principle of reason that everyone participated in. But it was, it's not just these philosophers that have the wrong ideas of God. We see these wrong ideas showing up everywhere, even in churches, even in Christian culture. And when I think about this, I always go back to this one scene um, from a ridiculous movie. I'm not endorsing the whole movie. You can watch this clip. You can probably look it up, and the clip itself is relatively fine. But this movie is Talladega Nights. The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. And it really so brilliantly illustrates how we often make God in our own image. And the, the scene where this happens is around a dinner table. The main character, this NASCAR driver, Ricky Bobby, and his family, one of his friends, they're getting ready to eat and they're saying grace, which is like in the South code for praying before your meal. And, uh, you know, Ricky Bobby's prayer, it's totally ridiculous and wrong-headed all the way through. But in the middle of the prayer, his wife interrupts him, and she, she's frustrated because he's been praying to Jesus the whole time as tiny baby infant Jesus for some reason. And so she says to him, hey, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him a baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And then Ricky responds, well, I like the Christmas Jesus the best, and I'm saying grace. When you're saying grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus, whoever you want to. And then everybody just starts chiming in of what their favorite version of God is, of Jesus is. Ricky's friend says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I'm formal, but I'm here to party too. 
And I, I, this is so insightful here because I like to party, and so I like my Jesus to party. And then even the kids get in on it. Uh, his son, Walker, says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai, something I can imagine saying as a kid. It's, it's a humorous yet kind of sobering, almost frightening take on what we can do as human beings. You know, we don't maybe remake God in a physical statue the way the Athenians do. But we do it within our own hearts and imaginations, even as Paul addressed here in this text. Even those of us who are in the church, who grew up in the church, who have been really exposed to the revelation of who God is through the scriptures, we still have hearts that want to bend that to creating a God that that would serve our interests, that would never call into question the way we think about things, the way we live. Maybe we do this, we highlight, you do it by highlighting certain parts of Scripture, really focusing in on those and, and ignoring others that challenge us too much. I say all this because I want to see this message here that Paul's proclaiming to the Athenians. It's not just for philosophers out there, but it's actually a check on our own hearts, a call back to worshiping God as he's really revealed himself and his word towards us. And so knowing that universal tendency, Paul is, he's, here, he's filling in the dots here about who God really is, and I'll read verse 24 through 25. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I think Paul is trying to get across here what some philosophically have called the creator-creature distinction. And it's so crucial because, again, this culture had functionally made their deities a part of creation, whether it was through that pantheism I was talking about or even polytheism. And again, the advantage of this, of creating God in your own image, is you can sort of control it. If you make the sacrifices to one of the many gods, the god that's your own personal god for, you know, say, your crop, he has to bless your harvest. He has to make your family healthy and fruitful. Or maybe you're a Stoic and you're thinking, well, if I just use reason rightly and I kind of tap into the force, I can have control over my internal life and nothing will really affect me. I'm totally detached from everything. And so I don't need some personal God to come and to die for me and to save me. It it really sounds like how many might view God today. But summarizing Genesis and and much, Genesis 1 and much of the rest of Scripture just packed into this statement, I spent so much time on it, Paul just emphatically saying, no, God doesn't need you to build a house for him, a temple. He doesn't need you to serve him. He doesn't need anything. In fact, it's the exact opposite. You're totally dependent on him for everything you have. He is this God of abounding generosity that gives all things to everyone. Again, 
pulling this text back on our own hearts. Do we really see God this way? Do we see him as a God of abounding generosity? Or, or do we at times harbor a more pagan conception of God that sees him as greedy or distant and our only hope is to kind of manipulate him by being involved with religious activities. Once again, we need to wrestle with these concepts ourselves and really apply them to our own hearts. And then that will equip us to lovingly go out and share these same truths with those that are around us. And Paul moves on. Again, we're kind of flying through so much rich theology here. But he moves on in verses 26 through 29 to really dealing with now who mankind is in relation to God. And I'll read that text again. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for in, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's repeating some ideas here, but I think what's adding on to this is the idolatry of humanity, making God in their own image, is not only so devastating, it's primarily devastating because of what it does towards God, but even further, it's devastating towards us. It means we're blind to who we are and what we were ultimately created for. We really are all offspring all God's offspring, even if you're here and you don't believe in God at all. You're totally skeptical of all I've been talking about. This passage is saying that even you bear the image of the one true God, and you're made to seek him, and you're made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And I want to note here before we move on too quickly how is Paul going about this filling in of the dots well if you notice he's already used a little bit of some of the language of Greek philosophy but he's even directly quoting these Greek poets and philosophers and these quotes are like actually pretty obscure it's not like Homer or Socrates he's quoting here you know everybody would have read in school and I think that actually shows that Paul had a really thorough knowledge of the Hellenistic culture. He, he, didn't, he, he really understood where they were coming from. You know, I can almost imagine you know, one of those philosophers on their like, stone chair or something sitting over, and then they hear him quote these philosophers, and they're like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe perking up a little bit. Now, this isn't to say that knowing your culture and quoting relevant ideas to what you're saying and trying to communicate biblical truth is going to magically cause someone to trust Jesus. But it does show that the Lord uses those secondary means. 
even if the Holy Spirit is the one that's ultimately bringing that to completion. And of course, we have to be careful in, in how we do this. I, I appreciated what one commentator said here about Paul's methods. He kind of summed it up. He said, the direct quotations from pagan poets have their place as points of contact with the hearers, and they illustrate the argument in terms familiar to them, but they in no way commit the speaker to acquiesce in the realm of ideas which form the original context. To say that more simply, we do speak in these understandable ways, but we're not doing it in a way that would blend the truth of Scripture with the ideas of the culture in a way that would distort them. That's not at all what Paul is doing here. And I think we see that by how he ends that speech. He's not afraid in verses 30 and 31 to deal with judgment and the need for repentance. We read there, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he is appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's not just educating his philosophy, his philosophical crowd here, you know, giving them, you know, a theological seminary lecture and leaving it there with, okay, they've got right ideas about the nature of man and the nature of God. No, that, that knowledge isn't neutral. It's pressing in on them. It's bidding them to do something. It's bidding us all to do something. To repent. The, the unknown God is made known in Christ and in his resurrection in, in an undeniably clear way, and that changes everything. And as we think about this, what Paul has been doing here, the manner in which he's been proclaiming the gospel, is really the manner in which God comes to us in Christ and in his word. The very words of God breathed out in scripture, they come to us, they came in their original context in, in a language, in using concepts that the people of that time could understand and could relate to and would be compelling and we see that most of all, most profoundly through Jesus. I think a great companion piece, if you're thinking about this passage, you maybe want to look at another passage of Scripture later this afternoon, is John chapter 1, the, the prologue to John's Gospel, verses 1 through 18. It's really kind of the, the Gospel counterpart to what's going on here. You know, John opens up with this clear, undeniable assertion of who Jesus is as the eternal son of God. And yet he goes on to say that that same word that was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And John too sees that there's this unknownness to God that he closes out that prologue there. He says, no one has ever seen God. Again, I've, I've loved some of the songs that we chose. Holy, 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 the, the glory of God, the, the eye of sinful man shall not see. 
John recognizes that, yet he says, in Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, in a much greater way than Paul is doing here with the Athenians, he has made the unknown God known to all in his life, death, and resurrection. He has shown what it means to worship God rightly and to walk out and to live as an image bearer of God in his human nature. He accomplished all we need to do what Paul is bidding this crowd to do, to repent, to return to God, to have the communion that he intended for us once again. Well, as we wrap things up, I want to lastly consider here, what what was the outcome of all this? We've seen the motivation, the manner in which Paul goes about it, but what can we hope for what might happen, how the Lord will use us as we go out into the marketplace. Well, Luke tells us in the closing verses, verses 32 for 34, he says, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. You know, sometimes I think about Paul or I just read the book of Acts and Paul seems like this unstoppable evangelism machine that like I could never live up to his standard. But here, the very first thing that's noted after his grand speech is that he is mocked. There's still people that are thinking this guy's just a babbler and they are, they're remaining in their intellectual pride. Paul has done nothing to break through that as least it appears on the surface. And though Paul's speech wasn't a failure, I do think the response that we see playing out here is often more in line with what we see as we seek to go out into our marketplace, our culture today. You know, some of the students at that philosophy club, I went to it, I went to it all year, almost every Monday, and many people were still very skeptical, remained totally opposed to the message of the gospel and what I was saying. If you engage your neighbors and your coworkers, you're gonna face this mocking. You should go into it expecting that may happen. The gospel is folly to the Gentiles. But yet we see here that the Spirit of God is still at work in the midst of that mocking. And we see it first in the fact that there were others that wanted to hear more. I mean, maybe, you know, they're just intellectually curious. Maybe there's nothing really going on here. But maybe at the time, it could have been the very beginnings of that work of the Spirit in their heart, calling them to Christ, calling them back to true worship with the Father through Christ, by His Spirit. And we see that that actually happened with some of those there. After that speech, Luke notes, some men joined him and believed. And he names two individuals in particular, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. We don't know much about Damaris, but it is, we do know a little about Dionysius. It's incredible to read that he believed because he's called Dionysius the Areopagite because he was likely a member of that council. He was one of those philosophers. 
You know, I, as I was thinking about this, I was just, I was thinking, well, this would be like, I, I've gotten to know a few liberal arts professors at IUP, one that live around near where I live. And to me, that's the only thing I can think of in comparison to this, that they would totally turn, turn from their own idols unto the living God. It's, if I confess, it's often hard to believe that, that would even happen. But this passage is here recorded as, for us in Scripture to remind us that no amount of intellectual opposition can stop the work of God in people's hearts. Even they're the most sophisticated Athenian philosopher. And it's further worth noting here that this had a longer-term impact. Eusebius, the church, early church historian, actually records that Dionysius became a chief elder at the church that was eventually established at Athens. This was the beginning of a church plant. It may seem like this small one-off event, but it had long-term impact for the city of Athens and for the church there. The triune God is at work in the midst of what we're doing, in the midst of our witness, even in, in the most unlikely desperate situations. It's, it's truths like this that keep me going back to the campus day after day, and I pray it will give you hope and encouragement as you seek to love and share the gospel with those around you. Let me close us with prayer.